0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. We've got a bumper practice issue for you this week with our associate editor, Mabel Chew. Later, she looks into emergency oxygen use.
1: What is unclear is whether it makes sense to have too much oxygen, because while having the right amount of oxygen is reasonable, too much oxygen, like too much of anything, could potentially be detrimental But firstly, tranexamic acid
0: to prevent haemorrhage, how should it be used? Here's Mabel.
2: We know that haemorrhage causes at least a third of deaths due to trauma and we know that such patients can develop a coagulopathy, which makes control of the haemorrhage pretty tricky. But there is evidence now that we can change clinical practice to reduce mortality from haemorrhage in trauma. And I have with me on the line Russell Gruen, who's a Professor of Surgery at the Alfred and Monash University in Australia. He's also a Director of the National Trauma Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Russell, welcome to the BMJ podcast.
3: Thanks, Mabel.
2: Russell, what single thing can clinicians now do to improve mortality from hemorrhage and trauma?
3: Well, Mabel, we believe that on the basis of a recent and very important trial, the CRASH-2 trial, patients with moderate to severe injury who are likely to be bleeding would benefit as part of their treatment from tranexamic acid given within three hours of their injury.
2: So tell us a bit about tranexamic acid, how does it work?
3: Almost all patients who are severely injured and who are bleeding develop a coagulopathy. In some of these patients this develops really early in their course, i.e. within minutes And this is probably at least partly caused by a process of fibrinolysis, that is, clot breakdown. The substance that mediates this fibrinolysis is called plasmin. It's a powerful enzyme that also causes systemic inflammation. And tranexamic acid blocks the formation of plasmin and therefore reduces the fibrinolysis and clot breakdown and it probably also reduces inflammation overall. It has been well studied in elective surgery and there are some 126 odd trials of elective surgery that overall show a significant reduction in the amount of blood being transfused when tranexamic acid is given. But CRASH-2 is the first trial to actually study this in trauma patients.
2: So tell us the evidence that it works to reduce mortality in trauma.
3: The CRASH-2 trial is really a truly remarkable trial. They randomised over 20,000 patients in 40 countries across the world to receive either tranexamic acid or placebo. Patients who were enrolled were patients who were thought by the treating clinician to be at significant risk of bleeding. The mortality reduction was really quite uh, impressive. Tranexamic acid, when given within eight hours of injury, reduced all-cause mortality from 16% down to 14.5%, and the relative risk was reduced by 9% with a significant confidence interval. We presume that that was largely due to reduction in deaths due to bleeding, because the subsequent analysis of the crash through trial data showed that, in fact, it was deaths due to bleeding that were reduced and that this was very dependent on the time at which the drug was given. The strongest benefit of tranexamic acid was seen in patients in whom it was given very early.
2: So are there any risks to this sort of treatment? I I would imagine the risk of vascular occlusion is is something that um, is a concern.
3: Yes, I think that's a really important question, Mabel, and uh, one that we've got partly an answer to. CRASH-2 was... A pragmatic trial. It was powered for mortality benefit, and it really looked at mortality. It was largely conducted in settings that didn't routinely do CT scans or Doppler ultrasound studies for uh, vascular occlusive type events like deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary emboli or ischemic heart disease. It, it left those sort of judgments up to the clinician. We don't really know without looking for it whether there were patients that were getting deep beta thrombosis and vascular occlusive events. Certainly, there didn't appear in the trial to be an increased rate of these events, um, but I don't think we can be sure about that. Curiously, within the trial, there appeared to be a group that had an increased rate of death due to bleeding when given tranexamic acid, and that was the group in whom the drug was given more than three hours after injury. Now, this is a really interesting and unexpected finding. Plausible explanatory hypotheses, but those which haven't been tested, include that there was an adverse event in intravascular coagulation, development of a prothrombotic state, or perhaps lack of effectiveness in patients who had already become acidotic or hypothermic, for example. But what it tells us is firstly that we shouldn't give tranexamic acid patients who are more than three hours after injury. And secondly, that there might be something in the risk-benefit balance in giving the drug that could precipitate harm overall in some patients.
2: So what do you think are the, the limitations of the CRASH-2 study?
3: They've had to use a study to design and access a large network of trial participants And those participants have been based in largely low- and middle-income countries where there has not been a highly developed trauma system. We know that in complex, injured patients, that survival and hemorrhage control depends on multiple techniques for rapid control of bleeding, correction of coagulopathy, and critical care support. And that countries that have invested heavily in systems of care that expedite this quickly and coordinate it, have been able to reduce mortality very significantly. The patients in the CRASH-2 trial had a 16% mortality, whereas in developed trauma systems, the overall mortality for the most severely injured patients is around 9%.
2: Okay. To summarise, who should we be giving tranexamic acid to and who shouldn't we be giving it to?
3: widespread agreement in the research community and the practice community that tranexamic acid is a useful drug in patients who have moderate to severe injury and who are likely to be bleeding who are similar to the patients in the CRASH-2 trial. So that's reasonably young uh, group of patients and who are largely not being treated in really advanced trauma systems. Patients who are more than three hours after their injury we believe they should not get tranexamic acid based on the findings of the CRASH-2 trial. In advanced trauma systems, tranexamic acid probably has a role. We certainly believe that in patients who get tranexamic acid, there should be careful monitoring for adverse events. And we're currently running a trial of pre-hospital tranexamic acid for seriously injured patients in which we're currently recruiting.
2: And and what are the things we ought to be monitoring for?
3: Certainly the sorts of things that we should be monitoring are the risks of thromboembolic complications, so DVTs, pulmonary emboli. Uh, we don't know about the arterial thrombotic dis- disorders, but, but they need to be borne in mind. And we don't know about the interaction the tranexamic acid might have with age-related comorbidities and other pharmacotherapy, uh, so all of these things need to be carefully monitored and uh, you know an open mind kept.
2: Okay, I think that's a very important point too. Now, do you see any barriers to implementing this in, in real life?
3: Trauma treatment is usually highly protocolized and including tranexamic acid in the protocol is likely to significantly improve its uptake. Other barriers might include questions about generalizability uh, and reliance on the findings of one trial. I think for the vast majority of the world's injured patients, tranexamic acid has an important role and as CRASH-2 has demonstrated, is likely to reduce injury-related mortality
0: and Russell's Change in Practice article is now up on bmj.com. Next up, a clinical uncertainty. Does routinely giving acute stroke patients oxygen improve outcome?
2: All right, I have with me on the line Professor Christine Roff, who's Professor of Stroke Medicine at Keele University in the UK. Christine, welcome to this BMJ podcast.
1: Thank you.
2: Um, Now, Christine's here to discuss the use of routine oxygen supplementation in patients with acute stroke. Christine, we often give oxygen to patients in emergency settings or acute settings. What might the uncertainties be with doing so?
1: I think it's always thought that oxygen is good because we need oxygen to survive. The brain requires oxygen to to function properly. And that lack of oxygen is due to uh, is causing serious illness. So in a stroke, you have l- lack of blood supply and lack of oxygen supply to the brain. In a heart attack, you've got l- lack of blood and lack of oxygen going to the heart. And the idea is that if you give a bit of extra oxygen, you might overcome the problems with lack of blood flow. So very very often in emergency situations, oxygen is being given just in case it's needed or just in case it helps. But what is unclear is whether um, it makes sense to have too much oxygen, because while having the right amount of oxygen is reasonable, too much oxygen, like too much of anything, could potentially be detrimental.
2: And I guess one example here is in the setting of an acute myocardial infarction where the guidelines have now been changed to say not to give oxygen routinely to everyone who's had an infarct.
1: Yes. Uh, there's been significant change of practice over the years with, with oxygen guidelines, partially because there's no good evidence. We all know that if the oxygen is very low, you have to give oxygen to normalize it. But whether there are, it makes any sense to give oxygen when the oxygen levels in the blood are normal, just to make sure that it doesn't fall too low, is is unclear. European guidelines in 2003 suggested that oxygen 2 to 4 liters were to be given when indicated. Then in 2007, they said if the saturation is less than 92%, and more recently, we give oxygen if it's less than 95%. Interestingly, in America, the direction was differently. While in a few years ago, they they would be giving oxygen if it was less than 95%, now they've got the the cut down to less than 93%. This clearly shows that uh, there is uncertainty, and one of the reasons for uncertainty might be that too much oxygen is is detrimental as well.
2: So what might be the harm in giving oxygen too often?
1: there There are two two major major potential problems. One of them would be that too too much oxygen could lead to uh, free radical formation and that itself could cause further damage to the brain, particularly if the brain is ischemic and there's acidosis. Free radicals could uh, cause detrimental molecular changes. But on on a completely different line, falling oxygen levels are usually an indication of something going wrong in the system. So one of the major concerns about giving oxygen prophylactically is that it may be masking symptoms which are signs of significant underlying disease.
2: Okay, and what is the evidence for benefit in stroke?
1: There is no evidence of benefit when it's just given prophylactically. Um, there is good scientific reason to think that it might be, might be a reasonable idea. We know that patients with stroke are likely to get low oxygen saturation at some point in their clinical course. So average oxygen concentrations in stroke patients are lower on day two and day three than those of non-stroke patients. And patient, stroke patients, particularly at night, become hypoxic. Um, and that hypoxia is often not noticed because the patients are asleep, the nurses don't get get go through quite as often checking checking the oxygen saturations. The patients are lying down, so they're more likely to have problems with their secretions, which they they can't cough up. So at night, oxygen saturation falls, and that may be detrimental to, to the ischemic brain.
2: Is there any evidence then that giving oxygen actually improves outcomes such as survival or function?
1: Not at the moment. There's one study which looked at oxygen at three liters per minute for a period of 24 hours, which suggested that overall there was no tra- no improvement in long-term outcome, but that patients with very minor stroke might be detrimentally affected and patients with very severe stroke might do, bet- uh, do better. But this was a subgroup analysis and could just have been, been chance. There's another study which looked at very high levels of oxygen, they were giving 45 litres of oxygen a minute, uh, an amount of oxygen which he can't give with a normal oxygen delivery apparatus we've got in hospital, and they found in a very small pilot study that it might improve uh, the level of ischemia of the brain, but had no long-term beneficial outcome, and when they tested it in a larger study, they actually found that mortality in the oxygen-treated group was higher, and they stopped the trial So, giving very high amounts of oxygen, and that's 45 litres per minute, is likely to be detrimental.
2: Okay, and is there any indication of when oxygen should be given, or for how
1: long? Oxygen currently should be given when patients have low oxygen levels. And that's it got to be assessed by checking the oxygen saturation. That can be easily done with an oxygen saturation probe on the finger and can be done constantly or intermittently. The problem in normal NHS practice is that even if you've got a constant probe on, that there's nobody looking at it constantly at, all the time. So there's always times when, it might, when low oxygen saturations might be missed. patients who are very high at risk of low oxygen saturation might benefit from prophylactic oxygen. Okay.
2: And um, just to sum up, it seems to me that what you're saying, the, the evidence tells us, is that routine oxygen may indeed do damage either directly. Uh, or mask underlying hypoxia or its cause routine prophylactic oxygen that is in, in stroke. There is certainly some evidence to suggest benefit, but we're not entirely sure at this stage who might most benefit and how oxygen should best be given. Is that a fair summary of, of what you've said so far?
1: I, I think one of the problems is that you can't always predict which which patients with stroke are going to become hypoxic. And this is where the idea of the routine oxygen supplementation comes in, that if you can't predict it, you might protect patients from becoming severely hypoxic by giving it prophylactically. And this is why I'm running a study looking, looking at this. Can medication. you tell
2: us then, given these uncertainties and, and given how common a stroke is as a problem, what should clinicians now be doing?
1: currently until there's evidence that routine oxygen does benefit patients the best route would be to be very carefully monitoring patients to monitor at least every 4 hours and to check to treat hypoxia when it's present and the first treatment for hypoxia should always to check the airway make sure there's no secretions there and to treat underlying conditions such as pneumonia, heart failure, or pulmonary embolism. And when that treating the underlying conditions doesn't help, that's the time when you, when you would want to give oxygen. Okay. So for clinicians who might be
2: getting a little confused about all of this, the first thing to do is to remember to monitor oxygen saturations, to look for causes of hypoxia if hypoxia does develop, and to treat those um, if they're not easily or readily correctable, by
1: all means, to give oxygen. Yes, but to monitor very closely and to see the need for oxygen treatment always as a sign that there's something not quite right with a patient. Because normal stroke patients should not require oxygen. The stroke very rarely affects the breathing. So if the oxygen saturation is low, usually something wrong with the, with the heart or the lungs. Yes, don't
2: view oxygen as a band-aid therapy. Thank you, Christine. That's been a very helpful update on the role of oxygen in treating acute stroke.
0: You can find that article on the website, and there's also a linked piece on more general use of oxygen in acute settings, if you're interested. Next week, we'll be back with new research looking at survival in extremely preterm babies. So come back then. Thanks for joining us.